This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. occasion to gauge your mind is uh, is a thrill for me. The The last time we spoke was just over a year ago. In the middle of the protests, it's the first weeks of the October 17 uprising and all the momentum. And I gave you a call from Beirut to sort of uh, seek wisdom on American foreign policy while everything was happening. And you were very generous back then. And a year later, <laughs> I feel like there's more to talk about. <laughs> the story. Keeps there's always up. more to talk about. <laughs> there's always more to talk about, and this time That's around, it's one, one of the few blessings of the Middle East, I guess. <laughs> you're absolutely right. The story keeps evolving, for better or worse. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, I had the advantage of doing only audio episodes uh, when I first started. Now I've sort of upgraded to video, and before we started recording, we kind of examined each other's wrinkles here and there and you know now you have to look at this i'm very sorry for you and the audience but yes (laughs) we've aged quite a bit since the acs days (laughs) that's for sure yeah you know i want to start really with just maybe the broad story a very broad story of the election the outcome biden administration and I, i mean just the general hesitation and perhaps anxiety that you hear among all types, policy makers and, and sort of the pundits, that there's going to be a, a, a change, a change towards uh, not just Lebanon, but the region. And a lot of this has to do with American uh, sort of uh, engagement with Iran and sort of policies and confronting Iran. And I just want to get your, maybe just your initial opinion on whether or not you see uh, fundamental changes happening and there's a piece that, uh, that sort of uh, lays this out in a way. It's from The National. It's for the Middle East, Biden is no Obama. And that title is sort of striking that, in a sense, we're not going back to the way things were four years ago and, and more, that we're actually uh, going back to the usual sort of routine policy that the way America interacts with the Middle East, with somebody who's been on the scene for many, many years, and that's Joe Biden. So let, let's just start there. It, it, maybe we can start actually with what you see as potential differences and what you see as sort of consistencies. And we can go from there, from Lebanon towards the region. Thank you, Ronnie. And it's always a pleasure to be back uh, on, on this podcast and, and to reconnect. Uh, I, I'm sure I, we're going to enjoy this because we are old friends and we have similar passions when it comes to the Middle East. I hope the audience enjoys it, too. Um, listen, the, the, the initial idea for this op-ed that you referenced that was published, uh, you know, Biden is no Obama uh, in the Middle East, 
um, came just uh, just through the experience of my commentary during the U.S. elections, and I was you know invited to speak on a lot of pan Arab. Uh, TV station. And I couldn't help but notice the level of anxiety on the other side of that camera. Um, people, particularly in the Gulf, but not exclusively in the Gulf, I know that, you know, that sense, sense of anxiety is shared in many quarters in Lebanon. Um, they seem to think that, you know, a Trump defeat and a return of, uh, of the Democrats to the White House will inevitably lead us back to Obama cozying up to the Iranians. And essentially what is viewed in the region, the, the, the nuclear deal, the JCPOA, as, um, as a pact that was done at their expense. Uh, and I just, uh, I thought that was surely exaggerated. Uh, and I still do think that it, that it is exaggerated for several reasons. I lay out the case that uh, when it comes to personality, um, but also when it comes to policy, but let's start with personality. When it comes to personality, uh, Biden is no Obama. I mean, this is somebody who was elected uh, to the U.S. Congress in 1973. So do the math. It was never my strong suit. But, you know, <laughs> nearing on 50 years ago, <laughs> maybe. Before the Lebanese one Civil of, War. Pre-Civil War. Before the Lebanese Civil War. I mean, this That's is some time this, ago. This is, it, this is your classic professional politician. And much of those years were actually spent on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, so... This is a person who knows the world real well, enjoys and is passionate about foreign policy, as many of us are, has traveled extensively throughout the Middle East, have, has no love lost for the Iranians. And actually, um, in a break with sort of what has come to, in many ways, to define the Democratic Party in the minds of, of many outsiders, uh, the progressive left, right, uh, uh, the Bernie Sanders of the Democratic Party and, and some of the others there. He's not an isolationist. He's not somebody who wants to just, you know, we've had it with the Middle East. We've got to focus on rebuilding uh, at home. He's not that guy. He voted for the Iraq war. I found it very interesting when I was doing research for the piece that after voting for the Iraq war in 2003, in 2004, on a trip to Iraq from Fallujah, he called for more troops. He wanted to send more U.S. troops. He wanted to double down on Iraq. Same thing in the 90s when you know, Clinton was in the White House. He, uh, he was very much an advocate of intervening in Bosnia in favor of uh, the Bosnian Muslims and to ending the slaughter. So he, he has a liberal interventionist impulse. So this is not Obama. And again, let's talk about the personality. Obama is the, is the almost mirror opposite of that. He is the outsider, um, the relative young newcomer who was not well known in Washington was elected to the Senate and basically sweeped into Washington on a promise of change, of, of, of drastic change and ending forever wars, uh, you know, coming after the, the George W. Bush era and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so these are two very different people with very different experiences. Um, and on policy, particularly to take it back to Iran and the JCPOA, um, one just has to look at, again, the track record and, and what Biden has uh, has said when he put pen to paper. There are at least two op-eds out there that uh, Biden has penned in the past year. One in foreign affairs, I believe it was March or April in the spring of 2020, and another one for CNN, September of 2020. Uh, and in both of them, he basically uh, spells out that returning to the nuclear deal, which is, yes, a differentiating factor between 
Trump on one hand and, and Biden on the other. We could talk about these points of differences, uh, but that the, the nuclear deal will be the starting point, not the end point and the end objective in his engagement with Iran. And that he will uh, push to uh, stretch out or to push out some of these controversial sunset clauses, essentially when Iran can then begin to enrich to higher levels again, that he will tackle the problematic ballistic missile issue around development and testing of long range ballistic missiles. And that he will work with U.S. allies in the region. So, you know, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and some of the others uh, involved there. He will work with them to deal with some of the problematic regional destabilizing regional activities that Iran's engaged in in Yemen, in Iraq, uh, in Lebanon, and in other places. Um, so, I mean, this doesn't sound like Obama to me. Um, uh, you know, Obama essentially went behind the backs of his Arab allies. He started secret negotiations through the Omani channel, and it, it caught the Saudis and the Emiratis and others by surprise. And, you know, refer to his his Middle Eastern allies as free riders uh, that need to do more. There was not much warmth and love lost um, between Obama and many of uh, his allies in the Middle East. I don't see Biden going down that route, although, yes, he will try to go back and engage with the Iranians, get the nuclear deal back on the table. And he will also focus very much on trying to end um, the Yemen war. That, that, that has been clearly a focal of uh, his talking points when it comes to the Middle East. So there will be changes. Uh, I'm not there arguing that there won't be, but it wasn't anything near what I was hearing uh, from the other end of the line or the other side of the camera in all these interactions, that level of anxiety in the Middle East that, oh, my God, we're going back to Obama all over again. You know, I'm, I'm glad that you're mentioning the sort of the anxiety and maybe the almost the psychological component uh, under the Obama administration and sort of regional players and how they perceived American policy. And also that secretive nature that you just referenced. Is, is that where the concern comes from, that it was American maneuvering without consultations? But, but otherwise, it's sort of a it's a consistent approach in that the Americans are moving on from their older conflict with Iran, whether it's Obama, whether it's Trump, or whether it's Biden, that there is going to have to be some negotiation with Iran, and that the Obama position was more America alone, and then the region follows American policy, rather than a multilateral approach. I do believe that uh, Obama was an outlier at that point in time. Uh, and I referenced in, in that article in particular, some of his close confidants and advisors, Ben Rhodes uh, is one of them, um, just in the sense that you know, both Obama's an outsider and Ben Rhodes also not somebody who has a terribly long foreign policy experience, but yet, yet nonetheless was at the, at the, at the center of, of things when Obama was in the White House. Um, they upended what used to be a bipartisan consensus uh, in relation to rogue regimes like Iran and, and Cuba. I mean, we kind of forget the, the Cuba uh, leg of this and, and aspect of this, but the Obama administration did a 180 on traditional U.S. foreign policy in Cuba. And just as an aside, the Democrats, Democrats paid dearly for it in this election because Cuban-Americans did not like that deal 
and right. voted against the Democratic Party in a crucial swing state like, like Florida. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's yes. yet to be seen whether the Democrats uh, under a Biden administration would go back to their understanding with Cuba, given right. the domestic cost that the, that, that now entails uh, for Democrats. But they did that with Iran and they did that with Cuba, and it was perceived and pitched as part of uh, Obama's legacy of doing things differently. Now, that doesn't mean that things haven't shifted and then the needle hasn't moved as it relates to the Democratic Party and its approach to the Middle East. Yes, uh, I think a lot has changed. Um, there is, I mean, Saudi Arabia in particular, but also the UAE to some extent. Um, the way that they're viewed in Washington has not been um, terribly positive. It has had some difficulties um, in the past couple of years, particularly in the left of center uh, with the Democratic Party. So there are concerns. And much of that is fueled by the war in Yemen. And this is kind of why, um, you know, Biden will have to address uh, the war in Yemen. But there are there are also constants when it comes to the U.S. approach to the Middle East. There are interests that the U.S. simply cannot detach itself from and forget about, uh, despite what the political rhetoric in Washington might be, right? I mean, wars are not popular. Uh, They have especially not been popular since um, George W. Bush. And so one of the great consistencies between Obama and Trump is the slogan of ending forever wars. And, uh, you know, we we are in Washington today and, and, and there's already talk about Trump wanting to withdraw from Afghanistan and Iraq before inauguration day, before his his term is over. And he's doing that with his political future in mind because he's thinking about either a 2024 run or at least being the kingmaker in any future run uh, or any future um, uh, Republican candidate for for the presidency. So he's playing to the street again. He's playing to to the base. And so these things are constant in terms of, okay, you know, Middle Eastern involvement in Middle Eastern wars are not popular in the U.S., uh, but nonetheless, I mean, look at where the Middle East is. I mean, the Middle East sits there on the map. Geopolitics does not lie. It, it sits there uh, in between three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. It is home to some 50 plus percent of proven global oil reserves. Um, it's got one of America's leading allies, which actually does have, does resonate domestically here in Washington and has a lot of influence, which is obviously Israel. Often the Middle East does not leave you alone. Even if you do want to leave it alone, it comes knocking because of issues relating to (laughs) radical Islam. I mean, so there are plenty of issues that will, and and then finally, and and I know we will talk about that at some point, uh, the the growing uh, or the rise of great power competition. Uh, The fact that this crucial part of the world right now increasingly is experiencing the return of Russia uh, in, in, into the scene and also the rise of China. And we know that these are things that are also important from a, from a U.S. perspective and from U.S. national interest. So in no shape or form do you, do you look at the Middle East from, from Washington, D.C. and think this is, this is a place where the Democrats, uh, a Biden administration is all of a sudden going to unplug or care less or, you know what, just cut the deal with the Iranians again and tell America's Arab allies sort of good luck. You're you're on your own. It's not it, I, I would I don't think it's going to be. that. How does personality 
factor in with with at least the Trump administration. And I, I'm curious about the the last sort of the last policies as this administration goes. Several several weeks ago, two weeks ago, Gibran Bessiel is sanctioned uh, in Lebanon. I, I think it was today or maybe last night that there was this uh, report about uh, Donald Trump himself curious about bombing Iranian nuclear facilities and sort of his staff intervenes. I think Pompeo is one of these sort of voices that sort of says no. And there's this eagerness to intervene more under the Trump administration. Is that born out of personality, really? That there's this, rather than policy, that Donald Trump is, he himself wants to have a lasting influence in the region that we don't usually see that kind of deep curiosity or even concern among other presidents. Case in point, Obama, I don't think had any any curiosity in sort of intervening. So what, can we touch on personality before we jump into the region and sort of the, the vacuum and, yeah. and Russia and China? You know, personality, personality, uh, Ronnie, is, is a fascinating area when it comes to um, geopolitics and foreign affairs. And there are people who are much more capable than I am who have written books about that. But uh, I have written, uh, read some of these books, and I do find it interesting. And I also have the benefit of being in Washington, too. So a lot of the folks who go in and out of these administrations are, are people that we know, and you know, we grab meals and drinks with and and so we hear the anecdotal stories and we see the impact of personalities on, on policy making right we sort of have a we have a, a window view into sort of the policy making machine in in washington and um let me take you back to four years ago when when trump was was elected and i remember that one of those conversations one of the more heated conversations over dinner and drinks that i was involved in in washington revolved about what the election of Donald Trump will mean for the Middle East. And you had a contingent which argued, and I think with some merit, that, listen, if, if anybody's concerned about undoing some of the damage that Obama did, Donald Trump is the perfect opportunity to do that because right. he is not particularly interested or does not have depth in the Middle East. Yet so many of the people who want to be tough on Iran are going to be staffing the administration. So how could you not support Donald Trump? Right, right. And the other side of the argument, dare I say that, the side of the argument that I was representing, or I, I was part of at least, <laughs> um, basically was making the case that, yes, I mean, a lot of the people that we do know who want to be tougher on Iran, who understand the, Iran who understand the Iranian challenge in the region, the way it undermines stability, it undercuts development and progress that feeds off failed states like Iraq and Yemen and in many ways, Lebanon. Uh, yes, they will be in, in positions of prominence and policymaking, but the person calling the shots uh, at the end of the day who makes the decision in the White House, in the Oval Office, can be unstable and unpredictable. Uh, and that should be a, a, a point of concern for all of us. And I, I, I can tell you just, um, in the four years since Donald Trump uh, was elected to the office, the number of stories that have emerged on issues like Syria, but not exclusively about Syria, when the professional uh, cadre of foreign service officers or even political appointees who know the issues, who've been working the policy and trying to implement it, are all of a sudden, after a phone call with President Erdogan between 
uh, you know, President Trump and, and folks from the region are completely sidetracked uh, right. by something that the president that has had decided on a whim, like we're going to withdraw the troops from Syria. Well, then the bureaucracy pushed back, pushes, pushes back. And six months down the road, we still have troops in Syria. Uh, and then Trump wakes up on, on the political necessity of actually making some noise about withdrawing from the release again. And so yet another soundbite, we're going to withdraw from Syria. And today, again, we're witnessing other iterations of that when it comes to pulling out of Afghanistan and Iraq. So, I mean, this is the Donald Trump uh, personality, and it, 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 it has an impact, a very real impact, to state the obvious, on the policy and disrupting the policymaking process by the professional uh, bureaucracy uh, over the past four years. Now, fast forward to Biden, because we want to look forward, not just look backward as sort of what's happened over the past four years. We are having similar arguments here uh, in, in, in Washington about folks who are like, yeah, but you know what? The Democrats have some troubling, um, troubling potential appointees that will be coming along and be, you know, they will be assistant secretaries of foreign East affairs or on the national security council or senior advisors, secretaries of state, perhaps, um, who have a checkered record in terms of being tough on Iran and, and, and being, and, and, understanding the importance of a more forward-leaning U.S. position in the Middle East and what, what the Middle East means for U.S. interests. My counter-argument for that or to that is that, yes, uh, certainly we will have to wait and see uh, who gets what appointment in the coming administration, and that will these personalities will have a significant impact on what the policy ends up being and how it will be implemented and carried out. Uh, but let's not at all discount that Biden is will be in many ways a foreign policy president. Yes, the pri domestic priorities and, and taking on the COVID challenge and rebuilding the American economy. I mean, those all are going to be left, right and center for him. But we know where the man's passion is and we know where his track record has been. And we know that he is very much interested in foreign policy and the Middle East. So I really think that in, in terms of trying to project what a Biden presidency would look like uh, in terms of the Middle East, I think you cannot discount the important role that he will personally play in trying to shape that policy, because I really think that that's where his heart and passion is. That's where it's been, at least. You know, it's taking me back to Paul Wolfowitz. I think it was, I think it was Paul Wolfowitz who said, uh, "Constructive destabilization of the Middle East yeah. is his sort of his wider policy." And then you have yeah. these very unique personalities in the White House, Obama and, and Trump. And now we're going back to something that's familiar, but it it sounds more and more like constructive stabilization rather than sort of a, an erratic policy that in a way you said earlier, kind of defines the Trump, Trump era, that's sort of yeah. on a whim. And, and out of that, sometimes good things happen, but you can't sort of count on them to, to sort of form a right. policy per se. Let's, let's go to the region. And I, I'd like to reference a, a piece you wrote um, in the Wall Street Journal, The Arab World Needs American Support, which came out uh, in July, this summer. Let's talk about the vacuum and, and whether or not there is a vacuum. Because I, I understood from your other piece that it doesn't really, this hesitation, this sort of anxiety doesn't mean that America has disengaged, that America is still the, the main player in the region. 
whether it's Obama, whether it's Trump, or whether it's it's Biden. Uh, can we sort of can you maybe touch on whether or not Russia and China are genuine competitors when it comes to American interests in the region, and whether or not there is a sincere reluctance or withdrawal? All I hear is that America is leaving. Started under Obama, and Trump sort of has in a way carried through. The exception is Iran's sort of American policy with Iran. Otherwise, disengagement. Is, is that accurate? And, and we can go from there and whether or not Lebanon has anything sort of uh, to gain or lose in that sense. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And we will, we will get to talking about Lebanon and, and all the parochial uh, <laughs> Lebanese politics that, that, that's involved. I mean, like, I mean, we're, we're, we all share this, right? I mean, you turn on the, the, the evening news or you tune into the evening news in Lebanon and it's literally the same story day in, day out. They are going to form a government. They are not going to form a government. They're a bit closer today. Now they're inching back and it's, 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 it's not going well. Uh, but we all care about Lebanon at, at an emotional level. And so we definitely do want to talk about Lebanon. But let's go, let's go broader first before we go smaller. Uh, yes, so much of the conversation is kind of about the Middle East is framed around, around Iran and the various dynamics that the competition or the rivalry with Iran spawns throughout the region in Iraq, in Yemen, in Lebanon, in Syria, and other places. But it's important for us to sort of cast a wider net or take a different lens, uh, particularly from a Washington perspective. Iran is part of the regional dynamic, but there's a broader global dynamic, right? And the national security assessment, um, the latest of which we have here in, in, in the U.S., views the rise of China and the return of Russia as the primary challenge, the strategic, um, the national security threat that the U.S. will face in the coming decades, right? So it, it is then fully understandable that from the viewpoint, from the lens of an American policymaker, this will be sort of the outer perimeter, the, the defining structure through which you view your approach to the world. So it's the great power competition that's taking place. Uh, and then you kind of overlay on that Iran and some other regional dynamics there with Turkey and Saudi Arabia and the Arab Gulf and the Israelis and whatnot. But the broader picture involves the rise of China and the return of, of Russia. And when it comes to the Middle East, I mean, we, we, it is almost palpable. I mean, we know that um, Kissinger in, in, in the 70s, and, and particularly with Anwar Sadat, I mean, it's another example of that, right? I mean, if you're sitting in the region, you were looking at the Israeli-Egyptian peace deal through the prism of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Right, right. But Kissinger sitting in Washington was looking at it from a completely different prism. He was looking at it in terms of the Cold War and competition with the Soviet Union and how to peel away Egypt from the Soviet orbit and bring it into America's orbit. And that kind of was the thinking behind um, uh, the peace deal that, that Kissinger had helped engineer between Egypt and the Israelis. So in similar fashion, American policymakers are looking at the region today, and yes, it involves Iran and Turkey and, and all these. In terms of the return of Russia, which since Kissinger was able essentially to push Russia out in, in the 70s, mm -hmm. began and returned in, in 20, I think it was 2015, when uh, they, they made, yeah, September of 2015, when Russia made its intervention in, in Syria. I mean, this was, this was in many ways the pivotal moment where Russia came back to the Middle East. 
But since then, uh, Putin has been very successful in kind of leveraging that that operation, that ongoing uh, Russian military mission in Syria to also get involved in Libya and right. feed off American failures in, in Libya. And I was in uh, Abu Dhabi and, and, and Riyadh last year when Putin was making his state visit, and I saw the lavish welcome that both of them gave to President Putin and all the buildings that were lit up and the colors of the Russian flag. And obviously everybody, including Bibi Netanyahu in Israel, you know, America's lead ally in the region, are taking Russia more seriously. Bibi has right. been to Moscow more than he's been to Washington, D.C. I mean, that should, oh, really? that, should get, that, that should get alarm bells ringing in wow. Washington. So, yes, I mean, this is a long uh, sort of response to tell you that the rise of Russia and of the return of Russia to the Middle East and the rise of China. China today is the lead trading partner for most Arab countries, including America's Arab allies. Uh, and so in the minds of, of the sort of the strategic thinkers in Washington, the question is, at what point does China begin or does, at what point does China uh, take the decision to weaponize its economic might uh, to be become more politically and militarily involved in the Middle East? And that's an open question, but it's one that strategic thinkers and military planners in Washington are, are, are talking about. The, the head of CENTCOM, U.S. Central Command, uh, General McKinsey recently referenced uh, the Middle East, describing it as the Wild West of great power competition because of the greater role that China and Russia are, are playing in that region. So I think that is going to be central. And that's something that we don't think about often is sort of when we're living in the region. Uh, and And I think that leads to the natural question of, okay, so is America going to vacate that strategic space? Is America going really pick up and leave? And, and if you're you're on the receiving end of all the rhetoric coming from American politicians, including the president, you know, well, you think it, yeah, we better start cutting our deals with the Russians and the Chinese because America keeps saying that it's leaving. It's had it with the Middle East. It's pivoting. Right. It's right. doing all these things. But I take that. I personally take that. My view is that to take that with a grain of salt. Uh, there is an element of domestic politics involved and in how unpopular the Middle East is in the U.S. Uh, I, I just don't see from a from a geopolitical perspective, I don't see the U.S. vacating that space anytime soon. So there's going to be just natural competition in that sense, that you will have competitors, economic competitors, geopolitical competitors. But the American withdrawal has been over exaggerated in, in, in that sort of in that framework that it's not they're not giving up quite yet. And for many reasons that concern American interests, they're, they're not able. We, we, st we, we still have about 65 days to the Trump presidency and anything <laughs> can happen. <laughs> That's true. I mean, he's already talking about wanting to pull out the, tr pull out the troops from Afghanistan and, and Iraq. Yeah. But if, if we are judging sort of by traditional standards or traditional U.S. foreign policy and uh, and what we know from uh, about an incoming Biden administration, I I, I highly doubt that we're going to see that kind of American uh, withdrawal or uh, or pivoting away from the Middle East. I, I think that the constants will remain. There will be robust diplomatic processes with Iran. There will be negotiations. It's an open question whether these negotiations will go anywhere. I mean, I think right. this will yeah. be a very difficult deal to, 
to, to sell in 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 DC, sell to an American Congress, even even if the Democrats do end up controlling the Senate, and that's a big if. It seems like it's, the Senate will remain Republican. Mm-hmm. The administration will have a Biden administration will have an uphill challenge trying to sell a New Deal. And then if you're sitting if you're sitting in Tehran, you're also thinking, well. You know, the first time we cut a deal with the Americans, that didn't last long. Uh, Biden's probably a one-term president. Right. There's a good chance that the Republicans could be back in four years. Do we really want to go through the process of negotiating a new, a new understanding with the Americans that will probably be out the window in four years? It's an open question. And of course, we, we're probably not going to move very quickly on, on negotiations with Iran because the Iranians have their presidential elections uh, in June or July of 2021, I believe. So, you know, Biden will not assume the presidency until January. Yeah. Then he's got to get through, get his people through the confirmation process through the Senate, which won't be easy. Then get a policy going. And so you're really not going to have any kind of meaningful engagement with the Iranians, probably until the second half of 2021. And you'll have three years of uh, Biden presidency left. And so I, I think that that process is not a done deal, not automatic, and the results are far from being guaranteed. Again, more reasons why that level of anxiety in the Middle East about a Biden rapprochement with Iran, I think, is, um, is overblown and unwarranted. It's well said. I, I haven't thought of it that way, actually. I'm, I appreciate that, that perspective. I, I, let, let's, with the limited time we have left, let, let's talk about mm-hmm. Lebanon. And I know Lebanon yeah. is in many ways the center of our emotional story. It may not be the center <laughs> of anyone else's story. And that includes a, American curiosity at the moment. Lebanon may be on, way on the back burner, if not on sort of in, in a storage unit somewhere. And then at the sort of the parting shots, if you will, it's on the news and sort of referenced earlier the uh, the sanctions against Gibran Basile, the sort of the expectation that there may be another round before Trump uh, departs, and just this administration and its 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 ability to exert maximum pressure on Iran through Lebanon. Does Lebanon have anything to hope for, or to maybe be concerned with? when it comes to the Biden administration. And I'm specifically talking about U.S. foreign policy towards Lebanon in particular. That, that, yeah. inc- that includes maybe curiosity in what's left of the protest movement. That includes maybe a, a, a bailout, if there is one. That includes Hadidi, maybe eventually forming a government. Just the limited, limited worldview of Lebanon when it comes to American concerns. Is, is there anything that yeah. we should see expect changing for, for the better or for the worse? Well, you're absolutely right in the sense that it is a very limited uh, bandwidth that Lebanon occupies uh, in Washington. And yes, it is viewed as a derivative of sort of the broader approach to Iran. Uh, there are tensions in terms of U.S. foreign policy priorities uh, in regards to Lebanon. On one hand, there is this natural uh, need to contain Iran in Lebanon, represented by its flagship proxy group in the region, which is Hezbollah. But also, let's not completely forget that there is sort of a historical animosity between Hezbollah and the U.S. that is independent of Iran, which has, goes back to yes. the Marine barracks bombings and the kidnappings right. and whatnot. 
And policymakers who are involved with the Middle East remember that it's part of sort of like their uh, their their foundational memories of growing up. They do remember the Marine barracks bombing. They do remember the kidnappings and Hezbollah's involvement in that. So there is this sort of um, there's this priority or this this policy of wanting to contain and minimize Hezbollah in Lebanon. But that is often in tension with also another foreign policy priority that the U.S. has in relation to the Levant and Lebanon, which is stability, right? I mean, we've got we've got a civil war in Syria, and one would argue that whether that's stabilized or not in the last couple of years, or whether it, there's more instability down the road. But there's, there's a lot of trouble. Lebanon is, is host to millions of refugees, the highest in the world when you know thought about per capita basis. Yeah. And so you want to kind of maintain stability, given also what it means for some of your Europe, European allies, if there's a new flood of refugees because of Lebanon's financial collapse. Uh, and these two priorities are competing, right? And so with the, with the Trump administration or with a Republican approach in general, you hear the voices in Congress from Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and some of the other Republicans there. There's an emphasis on needing to tackle Hezbollah and additional mm-hmm. sanctions and designations. And particularly when it comes to Shabbat Basid, I mean, he's been on the list for a long time. Right. Uh, and, yeah. he's on, he, and, and then with the advent of the, uh, with the uprising of the protest movement in 2019, there was then this additional angle that was brought in, which is corruption, systematic corruption, yeah. uh, and the Magnitsky ask. ask. And, and that was very convenient from a U.S. perspective to say, well, you know what? Not only is he aiding and, and enabling a designated terrorist group uh, by being its primary um, political cover, uh, you mm-hmm. know, giving it legitimacy, and, uh, but also in terms of the popular anger in, on the streets of Lebanon against Jibran Basit. So it was a twofer. It was a, it was a no-brainer in, in, in many ways, and it right. had been promised for a long time. And I do think that the Trump administration is currently involved in a process of, of what we could perhaps call setting the table, right? We're leaving, but we're going to set the table for the next administration before we go. And we're going to put in place sanctions that are going to be very difficult for a Biden administration to undo, whether it's, it's in relation to Iran proper or some of Iran's proxy groups, Hezbollah, Gibran Basil in Lebanon. Um, possibly, you know, the designation of the Houthis uh, as a terrorist organization, which would make it very difficult in the future to engage in any kind of peace process in Yemen that involves the Houthis. Um, so there's there's an element of that that's taking a place with Trump. And I wouldn't at all exclude the possibility of further designations and sanctions for uh, as far as Lebanon's involved before the Trump administration leaves. Um, but Basile was the big one. Basile was the one that uh, everybody's waiting for. And right. folks in Lebanon know better than I do what, what it means for Basile's much, uh, much talked about presidential aspiration. I find it very difficult to have a, a Lebanese president who is designated uh, by the world superpower by the United States uh, for, his, uh, for his corruption. Oh, but I like that analogy, sort of setting the table, that should there, well, th- you can sort of, you can make it very difficult to change whatever the Trump doctrine is and was once the administration, the Biden administration enters. So it's almost setting the stage for a potential return down the road where the Republicans win again. And this will sort of be a, uh, this will be available already. And, and Firas, I want to just wrap it up with, uh, with your permission. I know that you, you knew my father um, mm. and that you, you, 
sort of you visited him from time to time and maybe would uh, consult him on things regarding policy and maybe even personal matters where where to live and uh, what school to send your children to if there's anything that you can sort of share with me i love these sort of personal reflections that any moment or any sort of uh, any anecdote just a, a memory of him and and whether or not uh, uh i mean I, I like to keep him alive in any way possible so any reflection we, would, be, would be great your, your your dad is a big loss uh i'm, I'm sure the loss doesn't compare is, is a loss for you and the family obviously but he's also a loss for many of us and i uh I have very fond memories of him. I do remember him being my first stop in Beirut on any research trip that I that I took back home. Uh, and it would always start out uh, talking personal. Uh, mm, so mm. we had so much in common in the sense that he spent a long time in, in, in D.C., yes. but he was also very, very much Lebanese. And I'm coming up on 20 years in Washington. Um, oh, wow. So we would wow. always talk about his time in, 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 in D.C. And yes, we would get to talking about where you currently living and what's the neighborhood like and how did it change? <laughs> and, <laughs> and your dad always had a, a piece of advice to give of, well, you know what? You really ought to go about where the good schools are, plan for the kids and uh, move and ship out to the suburbs. And I held very strongly against shipping out to the suburbs. That is funny. Um, but he's, he, he, he's, aside from the personal, we would quickly get to talking, obviously, about the politics of things. And uh, he was just... Um, he was just a treasure uh, for a young aspiring person like myself back then, maybe in my late twenties or early thirties to get that kind of a view from an insider who was involved in policymaking in Beirut. Um, and he, he always made the time. He, I mean, that's how I remember there was never, there was never a trip that I took to Beirut where I called on your dad and he said, you know what, these are pretty busy times. Check in with me. Uh, check in with me later. He always his door was always open, and he would sit there for hours having coffee and debating, um, debating the Middle East and debating Lebanon in many ways, like you and I are doing right now. You know, I, I, somehow for better or worse, that was his passion, and I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned this. That yeah, he would always make time to talk about the things that we've been talking about and sort of everything that impacts Lebanon. He always found that time for friends and colleagues, and uh, I, I miss those interactions myself quite a bit. It's a thrill to always gauge your mind, Firas, and I know we sort of took more of your time than we initially agreed, but it's, uh, it's, it's a privilege to, get, uh, to have you on the podcast, and uh, I look forward to catching up with you a year from now when I've deteriorated further and you still look fresh. So that's, I think I'm the one on the we, we will. <laughs> I'm the one with kids, so I will definitely oh, have more right. gray, hair, gray hair to share. <laughs> okay, so that's that's the good news. I need to stop doing the podcast once I have children, because then it's uh, nobody will want to look at this anymore. <laughs> or or pick up on the hair dye. <laughs> or pick exactly. There you go. That's the secret recipe. You're right, Firas. Thank you so it's much. A pleasure to be with you, Ronnie. It's I appreciate a pleasure. It. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>